book of Matthew, chapter number 14. Last week, we looked at a passage from the book of John, chapter 6. And in John, chapter 6, we looked briefly at how Jesus fed the multitudes, fed the 5,000 men plus women and children. Now, we looked at that night how Jesus put the disciples on a boat, and he sent them over to the other side, over to Capernaum, while Jesus stayed there in Bethsaida. Now, while they were out on the sea, the Bible says that they encountered a storm, and Jesus came walking to them on the water. And we looked very briefly on Wednesday night as Peter saw Jesus and got out of the boat, and Peter was amidst some waves, and the waves were over his head, and the water that he was standing on was over his head. But what we saw was that Peter learned a lesson that whatever was over his head was under the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. The story of Peter walking on the water is also recorded here in the book of Matthew. We use John chapter 6, but we're going to use the passage from Matthew chapter 14 this morning. Begin reading in verse number 21. When they had eaten, they that had eaten were about 5,000 men beside women and children. And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. When he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when evening was come, he was there alone. The ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. In the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying it is a spirit, and they cried out for fear. Now, I'm going to continue reading that passage, but I want to pause right there because I read a story two or three weeks ago in a book. Mark Twain had written a book. It's called Innocence Abroad, and I was reading something about that, and it just come to mind while I was doing it. But it said that he visited, in 1869, he visited the Holy Land. He went to Israel, and he wanted to take a boat ride from Bethsaida over to Capernaum, and they wanted $25 to cross. Now, the sea is only about 26 miles wide at its widest point. So that would have been a little bit less than robbery at the time, amen? So they told me one wanted $25 just to ride to the other side. He said, no wonder Jesus walked. <laughs> I'm sorry, right in the middle of the scripture reading and everything. Verse number 27, straightway Jesus spake unto him, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. Peter answered and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, Come. When Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and called him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? When they were come down into the ship, the wind ceased. And they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying of a truth, Thou art the Son of God. Father God, I pray you'd take this message this morning, God. I pray you'd take your word. God, I pray you'd do what it is designed to do with it. God, I pray you'd pierce the hearts of everybody in this place. I pray you'd do what only your Holy Spirit can do and speak to everybody in this place according to their own needs, according to their own circumstances, according to their own situations. God, I pray that you'd take one message and speak to every heart as only you can do. God, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we looked at a message entitled, The Savior is Bigger Than the Situation. Well, this morning, I want to continue that. I want to use kind of from this same passage that the Savior is bigger than the situation. Is there an amen in the house on that one? But I want to put a subtitle on it, if you can, Learning How to Walk on Water. Walking on water is a miracle. Anybody agree with that one? 
A miracle is a divine intervention over the natural course of life. This morning, as we look at a miracle, this is a very unique miracle. This is a very different miracle than the some 35-plus miracles that are recorded there in the Word of God. Most of the time we read the miracles, those are things of great need, of dire need. We saw the lepers, the ten lepers that was healed. That was a great need. We see people in the Bible that had been blind since birth and they couldn't see and Jesus came and he gave them sight. That was a great need. People that were deaf and couldn't hear or mute and couldn't speak. And Jesus gave them hearing or loosed the tongue. Those were dire needs. We find people like Lazarus who was in the tomb. Jesus called him out of the tomb. That was a dire need. We find a lot of parents in the Bible and we, we find even um, Jairus, the ruler that came and said his daughter was sick and sick unto death and with the boy in the beer and the coffin as Jesus came. And so we find these children that are sick and we find parents in a great need and we see the miracles where Jesus reaches down and he touches their need, their absolute need in their life. But what we have here this morning is simply a desire. There was no great need for Peter to walk on the water. What I'm telling you this morning is Jesus is able to do miracles in your needs and Jesus is able to do miracles in your wants if you're just able to trust him. Amen? Peter said, Lord, if that's really you walking on that water, I want to do that. If that's really you, let me do that. And Jesus said, well, come on. I got you. Come on. So the Bible says that Peter got down out of the boat. So what we have is this very unique miracle. Jesus has just fed the 5,000 men plus women and children over at Bethsaida on the other side. And then it's important to realize, too, about the young man that gave the five loaves and the two fishes. I didn't tell you this last week. I should have told you as part of that message, but I didn't see it till this week as I was studying. But I told you last week he basically had five biscuits and two little brims. Had he not brought that to Jesus, Jesus would have commanded the stones and they would have still been made into bread and they could have still had some fish sandwiches. But the little boy gave what he had. And because he took what little bit he had, which was absolutely nothing compared to the need, he took what little he had and he offered it to the Son of God who could do anything with it. And he is written down in the portals of time from now on in the Word of God, never to be erased. The thing that the Lord is showing us there is that when you're willing to give what you have, what little bit you have, there are no limits to what God can do with it. I'm not talking about your bread and your fish. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about your life. I'm talking about what little bit of talent you might have. Anything that you can do, if you're willing to surrender it to God, then God can and will do great things with anyone who is willing to surrender everything to him. I want to borrow a passage from where we were last week over in John chapter 6. We didn't talk about this particular passage. It's the same story recorded back there, but it says in verse number 13 of John chapter 6, Therefore they gathered them together and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. We talked about the leftovers that were taken up last week. But verse number 14 says, Then those men, which they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth that prophet." That should come into the world. They missed that one. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. 
Both of the Gospels tell us that immediately after the great miracle, Jesus put the disciples on a boat, and then he went into an alone place to pray. If you're ever going to be used by God greatly, prayer has to be a priority. If you were here last night, or last Sunday night, last night would have been good, except you'd have been by yourself because I wasn't here either. But last Sunday night, if you were here, we looked at the three priorities of the church. And the first priority is prayer. If your prayer life suffers, everything about your Christian walk suffers. If you want God to use you, if you want to be a powerful tool in the hand of God, it's all about prayer. So we know that Jesus went himself alone on the mountain to pray. But while Jesus was up there praying, we find that the disciples encounter a storm over on the Sea of Galilee. Now, these were experienced men of the sea. This isn't somebody that just bought a boat and got out and couldn't figure out how to get it to turn left or right and reverse and couldn't get it pulled up to the dock. These are men that grew up on the Sea of Galilee. They grew up in boats. They, they grew up. They, they are seaworthy. Many of them are professional fishermen, which means they made a living getting in a boat every day of the week. They've been in boats, and they've been in situations many times before. They understand the severity of the storm. They understand the situation that they're in. They understand the trial and the test. Our text says in verse number 22, though, that Jesus constrained his disciples. That word constrained comes from a Greek word that means constrained, or it also means compelled. It means to force or to urge with irresistible power. Here's what it means in a nutshell. Jesus made them get in that boat. You get in the boat, and you go to the other side. He made them get in the boat, and he sent them out there. That means they are exactly where Jesus told them to be. That means they are exactly in the will of God for their life at that time, doing exactly what God would have them to do at the moment he would have them do it, yet they find themselves in the middle of a great storm. Verse number 24 in our text there in Matthew chapter 14, but the ship was down in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And the fourth watch of the night, that means it would have been somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. in the morning, just before dawn. Jesus went walking unto them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, it is a spirit. And they cried out with fear. Now, I know we're kind of in a little central region right here. We got folks from Alabama, and I got to be very careful because my family, some of them, I'm not one. They moved over here. But I'm the only one. We got folks from up in the hills in North Georgia. And, but, but for those of you that don't get that spirit, that, that was a ghost. And for those down in South Alabama and way up North Georgia, that was a hank. They, they, they thought it was something spooky. I heard a preacher say one time, and I can relate to that preacher. They said, it's obvious that Jesus is a better man than I am. We can relate to that for so many reasons. But he said, if I would have been the one on the water, when I realized that they thought I was a ghost and they were scared, I would have had some fun with that. <laughs> I, I can relate to that preacher. I would have been guilty of doing something that, like that myself. But the Bible says, but straightway. That word straightway comes from a Greek word that means immediately. It means at once. So in verse number 27, we see that immediately Jesus made him get into the ship. Immediately he spake to him. Here in verse 27, straightway Jesus spake, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Be not afraid. That is the world that you and I live in today. 
There are storms raging all around us. There are troubles on every side. In all of the situations that are over your head, situations that are beyond your control, situations that you have no control over, Jesus said, be not afraid. If you do some word studies on that, you'll find Jesus tell them here, says, take courage. Be not afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't fear. Take courage. That word, y'all know I like reading a lot of Adrian Rogers stuff. I think that was a, an incredible man of God, but I read a lot of his devotions, a lot of his stuff. But Adrian Rogers said, courage is simply um, fear that said its prayers that morning. Verse number 28 here in our text, Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me to come unto thee on the water. Lord, if that's really you, I'd rather be out there on the water with you than to be up here in the boat right now. And Jesus said, come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. I was thinking about something when I was reading that. I was thinking back to John chapter 2. The first recorded miracle of Jesus Christ ever. Jesus attended a wedding in Cana of Galilee, right? Everybody knows the story. They ran out of wine. Jesus said, bring me the water pots. Bring not a few. He said, bring all you can find. And fill them to the brim. Fill them slap up with water. Get all you can and bring them. And the very first recorded miracle of Jesus in the word of God was he took that water and turned it into wine. I was looking at our text. He took that same kind of water and turned it into a walkway. Isn't God something? But when he saw the wind boisterous, talking about Peter in verse number 30, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried saying, Lord, save me. I told you last Sunday night in that message, there's at least 650 recorded prayers in the Word of God. And of all 650 recorded prayers, the shortest prayer in all the Bible is this one. Lord, save me. And that was all it took. The prayer was heartfelt. The prayer was sincere. The prayer was full of faith. There was a great need. And Jesus answered it right then. In verse number 31, it says immediately. There's that word again, immediately. Jesus stretched forth his hand, called him, and said, O thou little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Do you ever wonder how Jesus might have said that? How, how many of you do a lot of text messaging? Y'all some lying jokers. How many of you do a lot of text messaging? Y'all text me more than that. You might well raise your hand. You know, the funny thing about a text message, you can see what it says. It's clearly there in black and white, but what you can't get is the mode. You can't get the mood. You can't get the feeling. You don't know if they're making fun of you, if they're laughing at you, laughing with you. You, you get the black and white. Well, it's kind of the same right here. I get what Jesus said, but I wonder if he wasn't laughing at him. Oh, ye of little faith. <laughs> what are you doubting for, Peter? Why, 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 what did you expect to see? You look around, you was in a storm when you was in the boat, and now you got out. What did you expect to see any different? Can I tell you something? In your life today, the storm is always around you if you take your eyes off Jesus. The storm is ever-present. Verse number 32, when they were coming to the ship, the wind ceased. Then they of the ship came and worshipped him, saying of a truth, they ought the Son of God. I told you a minute ago, these were experienced men of the sea. These were fishermen. These men had been out there before. This isn't their first rodeo. 
This isn't the first time they've been in a boat. This isn't the first time they've been in a storm. They know they're in a bad situation. And they knew that when Jesus got in the boat and the wind ceased, they knew they'd just seen the power of God. There wasn't any doubt about who just got in the boat. There wasn't any doubt about where the power came from. We live in a world today where people always want you to prove something. They want you to prove God. You want me to believe in your God? Prove God. They say, well, I ain't going to believe in a God that I can't see. Well, that's stupid. You believe in a wind you can't see. You believe in oxygen you can't see. You believe that carbon monoxide, dioxide, yeah, that stuff, the dioxide comes out of your mouth. You, you believe that. Monoxide went bad stuff. You, you believe all those things that you can't see. I believe that those people that claim they won't, Believe in a God that they can't see are the most blind, most miserable people of all the earth. How can you not see God? Y'all still got that little baby back there? How can you not see God in that? How can you not see the birth of a newborn? Think about just the eye. Don't think about any other part of the body. Think about just the eye. And the magnificence that it took to create such an incredible instrument. And it's just one of the smallest details of our body. How, how can you not look at the universe? Scientists prove that if one little thing got out of whack, the whole universe would come unwound. How can you look at the perfect orbit of the planet and the sun and all that? How can you look at that and not see God? How can you look at your own life and see the times in your life when you know you should have died, but somehow you got out of that? I can tell you how somehow it was. It's that God that you claim you can't see that saved you in spite of you. People claim they can't see a God. If I were to ask you this morning in this place, how many of you believe in God? I'm positive that everybody in this place would raise their hand this morning. If I were to ask you to raise your hand if you believe in the power of God, I'm quite positive that everybody in this place would raise their hand this morning. If I were to ask you a third question, say, would you raise your hand if you have any kind of troubles in this life? I imagine the greatest majority of us, again, would raise our hand. But if you're going to believe in God on dry land, You've got to believe in God on the stormy seas. If you're going to trust in God on the mountaintops, you've still got to trust God when you're out on the stormy seas. If you're going to proclaim the power of God on the sunny days, you've still got to proclaim the power of God on the stormy days. Amen? Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We know that the Word of God says that He is no respecter of persons. That means what he did for the disciples, he has to do for you. That means if he made the disciples get in the ship and go into a storm, he's going to make you. Oh, yeah, that wasn't the side of the coin y'all were looking at, was it? The amen got a whole lot quieter. That means if he sent them into a storm, he's going to do the same thing to you. But if he walked on water to save them, he'll do whatever it takes to save you. 
Jesus understands all that you're going through. He knows what it's like to be in your storm. He knows what it's like to be in your situation. He knows what it's like to face temptations. He did some of that himself. He knows what it's like to feel your hurt. There's no temptation taking you but such as is common to man. You know the Word of God says that just like he allows you to go into the temptation, he will make a way of escape that you be able to bear it. That is our God. Jesus knows what you need. Jesus himself, the Bible says, for 40 days and 40 nights went into the wilderness. No food, no water. Went in and was tempted by Satan, yet without fail. He remained perfect. Symptoms. Symptoms of a storm. Aren't anything that will catch Jesus off guard. Every storm is held by the hand of God. Storms may be personal, but storms are universal. Everybody has to go through them. I know we ain't worried about nobody else's when it comes to our houses when they matter. Everybody else in the storm, I pray for you. Spend about three minutes praying for them done, but when a storm comes to our house. So storms are personal, but storms are universal. Everybody has to go through them at some point. Everybody in here is going to go through some storms, amen? Some of our storms, y'all ain't going to like this first one. Some of our storms are storms of consequences. Uh Uh-oh. Proverbs 3.12 says, For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth. The book of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 says, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If he endure chastening, God dealeth with you as sons, For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? There are storms that you have brought on yourself by bad choices. By saying no to God. By doing things you know you wasn't supposed to do. Anybody know what I'm talking about? We'll get off that one, leave that alone. There's storms of circumstances. You know, life just happens. Life just comes, man. There's some things that that you have no control over. You're trying to do the best you can. You really haven't done anything wrong. You're reading your Bible in the morning. You're praying. You're just clicking along, going to work, telling people about Jesus when you get a chance. Maybe hand out a track. Pray before your meals. You're doing everything as best as you can. But all of a sudden, you find yourself in the middle of a storm. Sometimes it's sickness, bad sickness, unto death kinds of sicknesses. Sometimes it's family members. It comes down with the sickness, sicknesses that, that lead unto death. Sometimes it's financial issues. Anybody that was alive back 2006, 7, 8, 9, right in there, y'all all know what I'm talking about. Sometimes it's just situations that, that life hands us. We find ourselves in the middle of this storm and we have no control over it. We didn't do anything to get there. We're just there. Then there's a third type of storm. I'm going to call it a storm of compulsion. But it's when you've done everything right. You've done everything spiritually right, and God says, I'm going to take you over here, and I'm going to put you in that storm. God came and got you from where you were praying, from where you were studying, from where you were trying to get close to God, and God said, I'm going to take you from right here, and I'm going to put you in that storm. Job chapter 1, the Bible says there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. That means that Job 
was spiritually perfect. Job desired the things of God more than anything else on the planet. And the Bible says there that he stayed away from all manner of evil. Anybody in here able to claim that one? Job is spiritually perfect, yet in verse number 7, the Bible says, The Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job? That there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. And then from there, Job went through the storm of his life. Here in our text, the disciples are out on the sea because Jesus put them there. He put them out there in the boat, and he told them to go to the other side. They're doing everything Jesus said do, exactly the way they were told to do it, yet they find themselves in a storm. Can I remind you this morning that God is always a God of process. And the process will always run its course to achieve what God sent it to do. If God has put you in a storm or allowed you in a storm, it has an intended purpose and it will not stop until it has achieved that for which it was sent. I don't doubt that a lot of you may have been in enough storms in your life of serving God, been in some trials and through some trials and out the other side of some trials, you can probably think about your situation right now and where you are and look back on some past trials and you can probably figure out where you are in the storm right now. Each storm is by design. I said a minute ago that they're universal, but they're personal. They're not just personal just for you, but they're personal just to create an intended purpose in you, designed to accomplish something. That thought alone, the fact that I'm in the storm because God's doing something in me or for me or through me, that thought alone ought to be something to help us get through the storm. Amen? To know that God loves me enough to be doing something in me. Storms in every person, whether a Christian or a non-Christian, storms will drive you towards God. But they'll drive you away from God. Storms will bring out the best in you. They'll bring out the worst in you. Something that's personal. I don't use anybody else's examples. I try not to. I got enough of my own. I'm enough of my own failure. I don't need yours. <clears throat> but I was thinking about storms. And our family is, we're all the same. We all go through the same kind of trials, same kind of struggles, same kind of storms. But I was thinking back on storms in my life. And I remember when I first really got off the pew for the first time, really started getting involved in ministries, went on a foreign mission trip and kept doing foreign mission trip, and God began to call me to do more, and God began to call me off that pew, and he sent me repeatedly out of the country doing mission trips, and I found myself studying more than I ever had, desiring to know the Word of God more than I ever had, praying more than I ever had. I found myself teaching Sunday school, and everything in my life, was as close to God as I had ever been at that point in my life. And all I wanted was the will of God. My heart's desire was for that place called the center of the perfect will of God. I was willing to stop anything or do anything for God. And then the storms came. I remember, I remember in the storms... Financially, 
I didn't know if we would lose everything that we owned. That we had worked so hard for so long to have. And it wasn't like we could just sell a lot of the stuff that we had because the whole world was in the same situation. The economy was bottomed out. Nothing was worth anything. And like you could just sell your way out of it. Sometimes God's got to put you in a situation there ain't no way out of so you can see God. As long as there's a way out of it, you can think you can get out of it. Until you've depleted savings, until you've got rid of everything that was worth anything, until you've done all you can do and there ain't no way out of it, you can't know that it's God that showed up. In that same time, there was days I didn't know if she'd be home when I got home. Wasn't the strongest time of our marriage. I wouldn't say it wasn't the strongest. It was just there, there was a friction. There was an enemy trying to wedge in, trying to tear us apart. And all we was trying to do was get closer to God. But it just seemed like there was this constant wedge. And then towards the end of that, my mom comes down with cancer. Winds up being the disease that took her life. The greatest storm that I have ever faced in my life was the time when I was trying the hardest to get closer to God. Here's the deal. I've done so many things wrong. I've made so many mistakes. I've got so much sin in my life. God's had so many reasons to chastise me. And in the times when I know I should have been corrected, I see God's mercy. In the times that I know God should have put me in a storm and tore my backside up, I see God's grace. In the time when I kept on trying to walk away from God and kept on trying to stay away from God and he just kept on loving me, I see God's patience. In the time when he could have said and should have said, I'll send that boy to hell. I'm sick of fooling with that boy. I'm tired of him. In the time when he could have turned his back on me, I see God's love. The times that I should have been in the storms of my life, all I'm telling you is the storms of chastisement, the storms of consequences, the storms that I brought on myself were very mild-mannered storms. They were just enough to get me to turn back to God. If you ever wind up hitting rock bottom, it's because you kept on saying no to God and no to God and no to God till your little storm became a big storm because you wouldn't turn back to where God's trying to take you. It's in the times when you're trying to get closer to God. You don't understand, God, I'm reading my Bible. I'm getting up early in the morning. I'm up at 3.30 studying, God. I study for three hours before work. I pray an hour before I walk out of the house. I pray while I'm driving. I pray while I'm working, God. Everything in my life is about you. Everything I tell everybody to know about Jesus, I'm going through it. All I'm telling you is when that storm comes and you're in the middle of trying, that's just Jesus teaching you how to walk on the water. He's just trying to give you the strength to understand that he's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that you can ask or think. Here's my own personal thoughts on the storms. The storms of consequence are the ones that we deserve, and they should be the most severe. But they're just enough to get us back on track. It's the storms where God is teaching us and shaping us that builds us up that seems to be the strongest. So what that shows me is that God's mercy and God's compassion is greater than I can ever imagine. 
One of the ways to know what kind of storm you're in this morning is to look at where you're standing. If you're standing on the bank saying no to what God wants, if you're standing on the bank saying no to the call that God has on your life, if you're standing there not doing anything that God wants you to do, if you're living in sin, if you're living in a lifestyle that you know is wrong, if you live in your lifestyle and you're spending your weekends in the bars, y'all said it. You're spending your weekends in places you know you ought not be doing stuff you ought not be doing. If you're spending your nights looking at garbage on your computer and looking at porn or any kind of garbage, reading stuff you ought not be reading. If you're living a life in sin and you know it, if you're doing anything that is contrary to the perfect will of God, then you know that your storm is a storm of consequence. You know that you're putting yourself in that situation by continually saying no to God. If you're trying to do right, you're trying to do the best you can, and you just find yourself in a storm, the Bible says that the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. Rain falls on everybody. Storms come to everybody. Some situations just happen. But if you surrendered everything to God, You've got off the shore, you've got off the pew, you've got in the boat, you've set sail, and you want to go into deep waters. You want to be used by God. You're tired of casting a net for minnows up here in the shallows. You're ready to get out amongst the sharks and let God use you to reach some lost souls. You're doing everything that you can. You just may be in a storm of compulsion where God is trying to teach you something. What kind of storm are you in right now? Can I, just, can I just tell you, when you're really trying to get close to God, one of the reasons your storms have to be so severe is because the enemy wants to hurt you so bad. As long as you're sitting on that pew all warm and cozy and everything, all peaches and cream, the devil ain't worried about you. You think you offended God, offended the devil by showing up at church this morning? If you ain't going to worship God, he don't care where you are as long as you don't worship. As long as you ain't going to leave here and tell somebody about Jesus. As long as you ain't going to live a pleasing life to God when you walk out the doors. As long as you ain't doing anything for God, the devil ain't worried about you. But when you decide, when you decide, I've sat here enough, God. You died on Calvary's cross for a wretched sinner like me. If you sent me to hell today, you'd be right in doing so. But yet you've saved my soul. And I'm going to live my life for you from this day forward. I can't go back and change one thing about yesterday. But from this day forward, I'm going to live my life pleasing for you. When you do, the devils of hell are coming to your door. And God's got to put you through some storms to teach you how to trust him. Because you're about to get attacks you've never been through before. You think when you answer the call to serve God that everything is peaches and cream. It's, it's quite the difference. It's when the devil wants to take you out. What kind of storm are you in right now? You're the only one that knows the answer. If it's a storm of consequence, you're the one that knows it. You're the one that knows what you're doing. The Bible says that you can confess your sins. Confess your faults. Bible also says you got to repent. You can come down to this altar and you can tell God I'm sorry 
And you can live the same way next week and go to the same places next Friday and Saturday and look at the same garbage on your computer, and you ain't done nothing. The Bible says you have to repent. That means turn away from, turn back. But, but when you're willing to get it right and turn back from, your storms of consequence can end immediately. Maybe, maybe it's just a storm of circumstances. That's okay. God's able to calm those. If it's a storm of consequence or a storm of compulsion, God sent that to you. If it's a storm of coincidence, God allowed that. Either way, it had to come across the desk of God to get to you. Amen? Amen. So what kind of storm are you in now? Could, could I have you stand this morning, please, if you would? You stand right where you are. It's a personal question. It's personal for you. You're the only one that knows your storm. You're the only one that knows how much you desire the will of God. Do you really want to be what God wants you to be? Then you come to the altar. And, and, and you look for where you're supposed to be. You look for the call of God on your life. You ask God, what do you want me to do, God? Where do you want me to be? Where do you want me to go? What would you have me do for you? I surrender everything I've got. If you're in a, if you're in a storm and you know it's a result of what you've done, you know it's a result of what you're doing and the way you're living. It's called consequences. And although they may not be as severe, they will stay severe enough, long enough to get you to turn around. You put them on the altar. Say, God, I, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to serve you. I don't know, maybe, maybe it's just one of those circumstances, one of those coincidences comes along. You find yourself in a storm. It's okay to come to an altar and say, God, if there is a purpose for this, will you teach it to me now and let me out of this? Will you just end this storm and help me get through it? The storms of consequences or of your own making. The others are simply God loves you enough to do something special in you. Every situation that you have, every situation your Savior is bigger than your situation. In every situation, God will either get you out of it or he'll give you the strength to get through it, depending on what he needs to accomplish his purpose. The Bible says there in our text that it was during the fourth watch of the night that Jesus came. That's between 3 and 6 a.m. in the morning. We know that it's the darkest just before dawn. That means that in the darkest time of the storm, in the darkest time of the night, that's when Jesus came and he said, Fear not, it is I. Be not afraid. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. Amen. If you want to learn how to walk on water, you've got to be willing to get out of the boat. Said, if you want to learn how to walk on water, you've got to be willing to get out of the boat. There's a big difference in getting out of the boat in four inches of water on a sandy beach and getting out of a boat in the middle of the ocean, in the middle of a storm, 
just because you trust Jesus enough to get out of the boat. How much do you want to serve him this morning? If I could have heads bowed, eyes closed, I'd ask you to be praying. If there's anybody in here this morning, if there's anybody that's never trusted Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, Christians, you'd be praying right now that the Holy Spirit would do a work in this place this morning. I don't want anybody to leave here this morning without knowing that if you died this morning, you'd spend an eternity in heaven. And you can know that. You know the answer. If I were to ask you right now, matter of fact, I'll go ahead and ask you. If you're in here this morning and you know for certain if you were to die, you know for certain you'd spend an eternity in heaven in the presence of God because you trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. And because of you trusting Christ and what Christ did for you, you know you'll spend eternity in heaven. You raise your hand. I know I'm saved. I know I'm going to heaven when I die because of what Christ has done for me. Put your hands down all over the building. If you couldn't raise your hand, it's because you know the answer. You know the truth. You've never trusted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. I don't care how many times you've been to church. It doesn't matter how many times you've been to an altar. It's when did you surrender your heart to Jesus Christ. I don't have a magic prayer that will get you saved. This is about your heart. You've got to surrender your heart. Oh, I can help you with some words. You've got to confess your sins. You've got to say a prayer or something similar to, Lord, I am a sinner. There has to be a confession of your sins. You've got to ask Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins, erase your sins, wash them in his own precious blood. Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I ask you to come into my heart and forgive me of my sins and save my soul. That prayer has to come from your heart, not from your lips. But if you're willing to say a prayer like that, God is faithful to save you based on his own promises, based on the scriptures, based on the word of God, based on what Christ did for you. If you trusted Christ this morning as your personal Lord and Savior, I want to ask you to do something. Nobody's going to come to you. Nobody's going to point you out. Nobody will embarrass you. But I want to pray with you. I want to pray for you. Right where you're at, Jesus said, if you are ashamed of me before men, I'll be ashamed of you before my Father which is in heaven. I don't want Jesus ashamed of me. If you're proud of what you did and you know you're saved, you prayed this morning and asked Jesus to save you. You hold your hand up high right where you're at. Hold up high. I see two. Hold them up high. Everybody stand. I see three. I see four. Hold them up. Keep holding them up just for a minute. Amen. You can put them down. Thank you so much. I want the four of you to know that God is faithful. What you just did in trusting Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, I want you to understand two words. I want you to understand Lord and Savior. You trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. That means old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That means that the Holy Spirit moved inside. You became the temple of the living God. And the Holy Spirit will start directing you to want to do better. You won't want to do a bunch of old habits. That's because he's your Savior and he saved you from your sins and he saved you from the fires of hell for all of eternity. But I want you to understand that other word. He's not just your Savior. He is now your Lord. He owns your life. He purchased your soul on Calvary's cross and you surrendered everything to God. Follow what God would have you to do. Spend time reading his word. You can't know what he wants you to do if you don't read what he's already told you. Develop some reading habits. Thank God so much for you.